0: Well, today we finish up our series on the book of Esther. Last week we saw this counter decree of Esther and Mordecai enabling the Jews to protect and defend themselves against Haman's original decree. But remember, neither the death of Haman nor this counter edict fully removed the threat The threat of annihilation which hangs over the covenant community. And for nine months, there's two competing edicts that go forth in the text. Two proclamations about a day of judgment and war. One can either become a Jew, or one can choose to be an enemy of the Jews. And that suspense between the already decisive action taken in the palace in Mordecai's exaltation and the not yet of a world still hostile with the possibility of war that suspense resolves itself fully today in the text and so we'll make three points they're there on the back inside page of the bulletin the headline the holy war and the holiday so first first the headline The 13th day of the 12th month, right, the day that the original edict scheduled the attack, Haman's edict, it's the day that the counter edict for the Jews' defense, that day has arrived in the text. So there's a collision on this day. There's now going to be a resolution of these two edicts, and it's going to be a resolution paid for in blood. This was the day, the text says, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned. And the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The very theme of the book, the tables were turned. That's the book of Esther in one phrase. Already one knows the outcome of the war in the first verse. It's reported in a sort of journalistic, matter-of-fact way. We'll talk about why in a minute. minute. But the Jews throughout the empire assemble to counterattack those who seek to destroy them. And no one can stand against them. The people of all the nationalities are afraid of them, the text says. It's Exodus language with an interesting twist, right? At the Exodus, when the Jews were delivered out of Egypt, the nations around Israel were terrified. But in the Exodus text, you're told they feared the God of the Jews. Here, in Esther, in keeping with the author's refusal to even mention the name of God, we're told they fear the Jews. By the way, these two ideas are not competitive. Right? You can fear the God of the Jews, you can fear the Jews. There's a, the, the, the way the writer of the book of Esther likes to do things is indirectly, under the table, less is more, he doesn't chat, not not only does he not chat about God, he doesn't mention God at all. So what he does is he creates this idea, this ambiance that there's a sort of numinous, otherworldly, not quite definable dread that attaches itself to the Jews and to their remarkable preservation in history. And by the way, people have noted this down through the centuries, long after this book's been written. So the political officials, right, they they were formally charged with enabling the killing. And here in the text, they they not only stand down, but they assist the Jews, presumably with arms. We don't know exactly how, but they assist the Jews. And so we get in the text the root cause of this fear. Why do they fear the Jews? What's the reason the political officials now turn to aid the Jews text says, it tells us, it says, because the fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai, the type, the picture of Jesus Christ, as we looked at last week, a very vivid and clear picture. He's the righteous, vindicated, exalted mediator. He's lifted up in glory. He's prominent and enthroned in the palace. His reputation is spreading. His fame is spreading. His power is increasing for these nine months. And thus, Mordecai and his people are feared. So, it's been noted down through the centuries as the church has commented on the book of Esther that there's a certain anticlimactic feel when you get to this chapter of Esther, even last week's chapter. The last portion of the book, the last couple of chapters, the story's told without all of this artful suspense without all of this psychological drama of the earlier parts of the story. And there's a reason for that. It's, It's because once the reversal between Haman and Mordecai takes place in the palace, the war's already won in principle. The rest of it is sort of reported journalistically. The reversal that's taken place in Mordecai's exaltation, that simply widens out here. So once the tables are turned at the heart of the empire, there's no doubt they're going to be turned to the ends of the earth. Right? It's very similar to the gospel. Once Jesus is raised, the outcome is assured. So the headline then, the headline is summarized very bluntly, graphically, in verse 5. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what pleased Them to those who hated them. So I want to say a word about this because we're about to move into a more explicitly violent section of the text. There is a whole sermon in the Joshua series, you can get it on the website, which defends and addresses the reasons for holy war in the Old Testament. It's there if you want a longer background. But here I just want to note three things briefly. About this. First, it's really important to get this. Unlike Joshua's military campaigns in Canaan, this is a holy, and here I mean W H O L L Y. (laughs) It's a holy, defensive, holy war. Completely, totally defensive action by the Jews. Secondly, Their enemies had nine months to change their minds. Against the clear wishes of the king, against the new regime in the palace, against the actions of the local governors and political officials, the enemies still decide in their allegiance to a dead Haman, a dead anti-Semite, to persist in their deep and implacable hostility against the Jews, their hatred of them, and still nevertheless attack them to kill them. So they had nine months to become like Ruth the Moabitess or Rahab the Canaanite. And they chose instead to be like Haman. So there are no neutral, innocent attackers of the Jews here. And for the people of God, the covenant people, there's only two options. Kill the attackers or be killed. And the narrator makes no apologies for the Jews' choice here. Thirdly... The third thing, just to note, the narrator not hobbled by modern sensitivities. One of the things I always tell moderns is, all right, I get it. There's stories in the Old Testament that offend your sensibilities, but before you immediately rush to condemn the story, you might want to reconsider your sensibilities. Your sensibilities may not be aligned properly, and post-Enlightenment, Western, upper-middle-class sensibilities are not the only sensibilities in the world. People all around the world have all sorts of different sensibilities. So it's it's, it's really not relevant that our sensibilities are offended. Who would want a religion and a text that never offends their own instinctive sensibilities? You have a mirror for that. So anyway, the narrator is not hobbled by modern sensitivities. Besides, if he were, he would say, you moderns have killed a lot more people than all the bloodshed in the Old Testament put together. You've killed more people in Syria in the last five years than the Jews have ever killed. So I don't think you want to play this we're moderns, we don't slaughter millions of people game. But I digress. So he doesn't, he's not hobbled. He, the, the, the narrator of the text, the writer, considers what happens here good, really good news. Right? He expects us to be cheering if we read. If you've ever been around the Jews celebrating Purim, they laugh and sing and cheer and celebrate when they read the text. Right? You should be cheering with the relief and amazement of a people under an unjust death sentence being rescued. The great uh, Miroslav Wolf, who's a, a theologian at Yale, talks about this. Talks about, he's from Croatia. Where he has grown up, seeing, as he puts it, his family and his relatives and his villages burned and the women of his community raped and his people, the earth they live on, scorched. And then he meets comfortable Westerners at Yale who insist that we can't believe that God would ever exact vengeance or justice in the world. And he thinks there's only a certain comfortable sort of unscarred existence that has trouble with this sort of thing. But even here, even here, this is simply a defensive action. So all this is, is a defensive action. So we've heard the headline, and the second point is the actual war itself, the holy war itself. The Jews killed 500 men in the citadel. They did not kill women or children. It appears shocking that in the heart of the government, right? This is the, this is the quarter, the government quarter in Susa. There are this many who are still allied with Haman, violent enemies of the Jews. Haman still has power, starting with his own children, to whom he has apparently passed on his poisonous ideology. And thus we're told next in the text that the Jews killed the ten sons of Haman. And they are all listed. You heard Steve gallantly read them this morning. <laughs> They're all listed there in the text. One name one ancient Persian name after another. And why are they listed like that? They're listed for effect. It's a grim counterpoint to the comedic opening of the book where all the king's eunuchs were listed by name which was a subtle form of satire. And all the king's legal advisors are listed by name in chapter 1. In other words, yes, the king has lots and lots of eunuchs to protect his harem. And the king has lots and lots of legal advisors because the, the king and the empire and the law are absurd. And you know what is fascinating about this? That if, when the book of Esther is read in the synagogue to this day, right? the, the reader, the lector of the text, is told to read the names of the sons of Haman, in one breath, he's supposed to do he or she is supposed to do this. And then read out all 10, those, all ten of those long person names in one breath. You're not allowed to breathe in again. You know why? It's the Jews' way of saying these sons of Haman are a puff of smoke. They're nothing. They're lighter than nothing. They're gone. Boom. We don't even breathe for them. We read them in one breath. And again, at the end of verse 10, we're told the Jews did not lay their hands on the plunder. We are told this three times in the passage. The war is defensive. They did not attack women or children. They did not take any plunder, even though the decree allowed it. But it's forbidden under the principles of holy war. And this is a limited defense of holy war. In holy war, the people of God are the instrument of the righteous judgment of God on the enemies of God. And thus, there can be no question of personal gain or enrichment. Taking the spoils is forbidden. And many of you will know that back in 1 Samuel, King Saul spared the sword, took the soils, lost his kingdom. That's all being undone here. Here the Jews under Mordecai do not spare the sword. They execute Haman's sons. They refuse to take the spoils. This is not about blood, blood or plunder. This is about justice, defensive justice. So the number of those killed in the citadel gets reported to the king. And strangely, the king now initiates a conversation with Queen Esther. She does not have to plead. This is how much the power, the leverage in their relationship has shifted. So Xerxes talks. By the way, this is the most he talks in the book. He says they've killed five hundred men and the ten sons of Haman. Who knows what they've done in the rest of the promises? provinces, provinces, and the rest of the provinces? Now he wouldn't get he wouldn't get the reports from the provinces for weeks. He knows how many are killed where he is in the citadel. He seems kind of detached almost bemused by the death toll more than he's rejoicing in the Jews' deliverance. But then he basically gives the queen, he gives Esther, a blank check. Now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. It's a remarkable act of deferral, and it shows that the tables have turned in their relationship as well. And Esther, who we've learned, is both skillful but also has a spine of steel. She asked for a, a second day to carry out the edict and for Haman's 10 sons who are dead to be publicly impaled. Esther has often been criticized here for unjust, undue vengeance. But it's, I think it's much more likely that from inside the palace, she knew that in Susa, there were more attackers who posed a clear and present danger. And that there were likely to be more technically unlawful attacks. Remember, both decrees were limited to one day. But Esther's basically saying, they're not going to stop attacking us. So we need to be able to defend ourselves one more day. So this impaling of an enemy's sons, this is well-documented widely practiced in ancient Near Eastern warfare. And what it does is it sends a very grim message to the anti-Semites and to all their allies. It says there will be no restoration of Hamanite policies. It's a deterrent. It says never again. It's a kind of ancient version of judgment at Nuremberg. So the king issues an edict. The sons are impaled. 300 more Enemies are killed the following day in the citadel. Again, we're told no hands were laid on the plunder. Then the report comes in from the provinces. Now, remember, this is a massive empire from India to to, to modern-day Ethiopia and the Sudan. There's 75,000 attackers that were killed, and again, we're told the Jews did not lay hands on the plunder. So there's victory in the city. There's victory in the provinces. So again, sensibilities. You know what one modern scholar says here? It may be the best thing. He says, the victory in the provinces should be viewed as equivalent to a successful insurrection in the World War II era Warsaw ghetto with the result of 75,000 SS troops being slaughtered. That's how you should read the text. So finally... There's a holiday. The whole rest of the book is taken up with showing how this, including Esther's request for the second day. This is the origin of why the Jews to this day celebrate the Feast of Purim over two days and not one, because Esther asked for that second day. Right. They just celebrated this in in March. The Jews just celebrated this holiday. And I want to focus on this note of celebration. We're told Three times in three verses, that these days are days of feasting and joy, days of rest, days of giving gifts—almost certainly uh, food gifts, gifts to each other—and then after our text, we're told gifts also to the poor. Right, and this practice continues in Jewish communities. So, we mentioned last week the already, the not yet in this text. Mordecai is exalted. A new decree is promulgated, but the old threat of death, the old decree, the presence of enemies remains. But here, the enemies are defeated, and the church enters into joy and into gladness and into her rest. Many of its contours, the book points to these New Testament realities in Christ. Even the feasting in the book has now been reversed. There's about nine or ten banquets in the book of Esther This is how the age ends. The the enemies of God with their banquets in the grave, banquets in the mouth of the grave, are defeated and the church celebrates the marriage supper of the Lamb in the light of God's face. And that celebration is already underway. It begins now. It was already underway when the Jews began celebrating Purim after this triumph. It continues in the church's life of eating and drinking together, especially at that table, but not exclusively there. So festivity, banqueting, joy, eating, drinking, these are to mark the life of the Christian community. And it's rooted in what God has done for us in Christ, which is prefigured in this story. Right? Eucharistic living means living with gratitude, living that's fundamentally vertical and, and gives thanks, gladness. And it, that kind of living should produce an avalanche of hospitality, of banqueting, and of feasting, and of joy. These things are sacraments, of course. Right? They are not the substance. They, 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 you know, the food and drink of this age point to the new, the new, new creation. The creation itself is a sacrament. We don't turn sacraments into the thing itself, but we enjoy the sacramental gifts of God. So I'm going to conclude with some orientation for us from this text and from the book as a whole, since this is the last text we'll look at in Esther. I'm sure that you've been relieved about something which has terrified you. Probably almost everyone of any years has had this experience. A medical diagnosis, which you might dread, which turned out to be wrong. Or a gripping fear, which turns out to be unfounded. The the atmosphere of relief only heightened, right? Escalated for a whole people's existence. That is what this text is trying to get you to taste and feel. To breathe in. And that points us to the gospel. We have been rescued from our own sin, from our own shame, from our own death, from our own enemies, from the very mouth of hell in Jesus Christ. Which is why he can never be reduced to just a moral teacher or an example or a prophet. He has wrought this deliverance for us and it should be an exhilarating relief. Every week we confess our sins and that same risen Christ assures you, Your wickedness is not going to make the rock of my forgiveness melt. It's an exhilarating thing. There has been a revolution, the Christian faith insists, in the power structure of the universe itself, in the cross and resurrection of Christ. And that's exhilarating. The cross of Jesus is the gallows, right? The petard on which he has disarmed and made a public spectacle of all the powers arrayed against us. Yet we are still living in a world where we are awaiting final deliverance. We live between the revolution and the resurrection of the dead. Between the revolution and the renovation of the cosmos. It's important to position ourselves properly. We, they are, that we live in a world still subject to sin and death and enemies, to pogroms and exiles. And we still live in a world, as I mentioned in the very first sermon on Esther, the modern world has many similarities. There's important differences, of course, but many similarities with the world of Esther a world dominated by secular empire, a world where God seems painfully absent, a world where miracles are few and far between. Remember, we talked about the difference between this book and the book of Daniel, written just a little bit earlier. We live in a world in which there is no narrator telling us this or that is the hand of God. We have an Esther-like narrator for our lives often. In that world... This world, with all of its ambiguity and all of its doubt and all of its struggle, in that world, the world you live in, this book, right one of two books in the, in the Old Testament that don't mention God at all, this book has been and remains a source of extraordinary comfort and hope. It's as if the writer has mastered the fact that what is unsaid is more potent than what is said. The book of Esther was cherished by European Jews in the face of Hitler's Haman-like final solution. Did you know that Hitler, in fact, banned the reading of the book of Esther? He knew what he was up against. He banned the reading of the book. And the Nazis would kill anyone they found that had a copy of the book. And you know what? Many Jews could produce the book from memory. In Hebrew. That's how precious the book was to them. And here, I want to be clear. For millions of them, as for millions of Christians, no earthly deliverance comes on the 13th day of Adar. The preservation of a people can be and has been accompanied by the immense suffering even the decimation of that people tyrants have their way they continue to slaughter the people of god documenting this around the world would take a whole series of lectures yet the covenant community survives and thrives and prevails in january of 1944 hitler gave a speech In the speech, he said that if the Nazis lost, a thing which he knew was a live possibility at this point, if the Nazis lost, then the Jews could celebrate their Purim. And in October of 1946, after the war, 10 Nazi leaders, the same number as Haman's sons, 10 Nazi leaders were hung on the gallows at Nuremberg. And one of them caught the poetic justice of the situation. And when he was led to the scaffold, he shouted, Purim Feast, 1946. So we thank God, as the Jews did, for historical victories. But for us, the primary meaning is that there is a guaranteed future, utterly complete deliverance because Jesus has hung on the gallows. Deliverance for him was after death, after the 13th day of Adar, after Good Friday, at the resurrection of the body. And so will final deliverance for us be. Elie Wiesel, famous Jewish author, wrote in his gripping book, Night, he writes of watching a young child with two others in front of thousands of spectators in a Nazi death camp being hung and then being forced to walk past the hanging victims in a long line. Everybody else in the camp would be forced to walk past. Right, And there are two hanging bodies and this young child in the middle. And Wiesel writes this. He writes, But the third rope was still moving the child too light was still breathing and so he remained for more than half an hour lingering between life and death writhing before our eyes and we were forced to look at him at close range he was still alive when I passed him his tongue was still red his eyes not yet extinguished behind me I heard a man asking for God's sake where is God? And within me, I heard a voice answer. Where is he? Where is he? This is where? Hanging there. From this gallows." Now, of course, Wiesel meant that God himself was extinguished. That God himself had died in the camps for him. For us, it means... That if deliverance does not come now on the 13th of Adar, if it appears that God is silent, if holocausts rage on, if miracles do not intervene, if there are no voices, it means that our God is on the gallows, deep in the fabric of death as the one who destroys death by dying. Christians believe in the face of these things not because we're sentimental or romantic or because we're irrational and we're just going to believe anyway, right? The scandal and the absurdity and the terror of this kind of evil is at the very heart of the mystery of the cross, right? We have a God who is innocent hanging on the gallows, Around whom were a group of people saying, where is God? Right. This one conquers by being conquered. This one's ironic victory secures our victory. This one's resurrection with its guarantee of your resurrection alone secures the hope of the book of Esther. And this is why, in the midst of a brutal and dark world, the people of God, hounded but not extinguished, trusting, trusting this often mysterious and elusive providence, still flourish and we still celebrate. When we eat, when we drink, when we sing, when we praise God, here is what we are doing we are exercising a, a kind of defiance against the powers we are refusing to capitulate to the narrative that can be written because we are saying, yes, that is God hanging there on the gallows because our mediator hung on the gallows once at the bottom of all human misery and abandonment and because that mediator is exalted, we sing. And the church is singing in the teeth of the most difficult century to be a Christian in the history of the church in three quarters of the world. He has canceled the decree against us. He has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail. He shall come again in glory to deliver us from all our enemies. We believe this, again, not because we're hopeless romantics or because we're naive. We believe it because a revolution at the center of power has already occurred. Right. Our greater Mordecai has already been exalted. And then by the strange and silent and elusive providence of God, his empire will extend to the ends of the earth. And on that day, we will say all of history's tables have been turned. And God has given us the upper hand over all our enemies. Amen. Amen.